Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Zhao Yang. Coming up, Kevin McCarthy has become the first Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives to be ousted. What happens next? The European Union will assess export controls on sensitive technologies. We examine the evolving definition of national security in the context of international trade. And in a sharp escalation of a weeks-long crisis, India has told Canada to withdraw dozens of diplomatic staff. What does the future hold for India-Canada relations? U.S. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has been voted out of the job. He became the first leader in the history of the lower chamber of Congress to be removed from the position. Eight Republicans voted against their party leader and sided with 208 Democrats after McCarthy struck a deal with Senate Democrats to fund government agencies. There is no clear successor to oversee the House Republican majority. Congress has just over 40 days to agree on a deal to avoid another potential government shutdown. For more, we are now joined on the line by Harvey Zoden, former vice president of ABC TV Network and senior fellow of the Center for China and Globalization. Harvey, thanks for joining us. Sure, Jiayang. So, for the first time in U.S. history, the House has removed its leader. What has led to this unprecedented crisis? Well, as you pointed as pointed out, the proximate cause is that uh, radicals were outraged. Republican radicals were outraged that McCarthy worked with Democrats to avert a government closure. Now, in the past,、uh, there's been more cooperation across the aisle, but、uh, in this、uh, Congress, at this point in time,、uh, it's an ideological battle between extreme、uh, conservatives. Conservatives, moderates, and liberals, and、uh, the U.S. is、uh, the loser in this one. In the longer term,、uh, there is also the cause that、uh, McCarthy had 15 ballots、uh, before he was elected Speaker. It was a position that he lusted for.、Uh, it used to be one of the most important and most powerful jobs in Washington. And basically, to get this job,、uh, Congressman McCarthy. Sold his soul to the devil, or in this case, devils of the extreme you know, MAGA Freedom Caucus, to allow one person to trigger the Speaker's removal, and that's what happened、uh, earlier this week. That was triggered, and、uh, he lost his position. And even before that. There was the Tea Party that had zero to do with tea. It wasn't even a party. They were the Freedom Caucus's predecessor, also from safe, extreme right-wing districts, who sought to basically limit the federal government to defense matters and to little else. And now、uh, their chickens have come home to roost, and the government is uh, not. Uh, Going to be able to perform its legislative functions, and ultimately may not be able to perform its、uh, executive branch functions either.、Mm-hmm. So, how would you expect the situation to unfold in the coming days and weeks?、Uh, one five-letter word comes to mind, and that's chaos. Now, there is currently an acting speaker who possesses far fewer powers than the elected speaker himself. Uh, many people are going to run for this job, even though McCarthy said he's not running. He's going to be nominated.、Uh, but the real kicker is the speaker. 
doesn't even have to be from Congress. There's nothing in the Constitution about the qualification for the speaker. So there have been rumors in the past that Donald Trump will be nominated. I don't think that's going to happen, but I could imagine uh, that he could be nominated. He's an accused felon, a former president and the master of sowing chaos. Uh, he could be elected speaker. And what it shows is just how broken the U.S. system of governance is. The U.S. is facing numerous existential, political, and economic issues. And the only issue that really unites the country is the hatred of China. And the, in the coming months leading up to the presidential election, it's going to be a massive race to the bottom on who can demonize China the most. But this is at the very time that we should be working on global issues like environment and public health. But clock's ticking, and there aren't enough efforts to protect the next big disaster. Yet these uh, people in Congress uh, are playing with fire by putting politics uh, over uh, what people in the U.S. and the globe need to have a future at all. Okay. Oh, well, as you said, uh, the uncertainty surrounding the election of a new speaker has the potential to plunge Congress into further chaos. Uh, so how might this stalemate affect legislative business and the looming government funding deadline in mid-November? It could affect it profoundly because the acting speaker has much reduced powers. Uh, he's kind of a caretaker. He's even gonna, unable to bring legislation to the floor or take it off uh, out of consideration. He doesn't even have the power to issue subpoenas, sign off on uh, official House business that would require the Speaker uh, to uh, approve it. So, so you're looking at a legislative stalemate, and you're looking at the prospect of a lengthy government shutdown that'll harm financial markets in the U.S. and globally. And we don't know if the adults in the room are going to be able to persuade the crazies to elect a speaker to do the government's business. Uh, I think that's unlikely uh, for the next month or so. Maybe it can be done before the deadline on the um, spending limit. So I'd say to anybody who's interested in this, fasten your seatbelts, as this is unprecedented in U.S. history. It's really proof, unfortunately, that the U.S. system is broken and seems to be beyond repair. And I think it augurs poorly for all of our futures, not only for Americans, but Chinese, Europeans, everybody else. Okay. And, and McCarthy has criticized uh, the Republican rebels for their role in exposing a real institutional problem in Congress. Uh, so, so what institutional problem was he referring to? And does he have a point? Well, I think yes and no. Uh, the problem isn't only institutional because it was McCarthy himself that gave in to numerous demands from uh, the Freedom Caucus. And the biggest one, the one that got him, was that a single member could trigger a vote to remove the speaker. Uh, so his dream, McCarthy's dream of being speaker uh, came true, but actually it turned out to be his worst nightmare. Uh, but there are institutional problems that have existed for a long time that go well beyond this vote. The House of Representatives isn't representative at all. It doesn't reflect one person, one vote, or the will of the majority. 
because districts are gerrymandered to be unrepresentative by forcing minorities into ghettos so whites can get more seats. It's also done by both parties to strengthen their own advantage and to weaken the opposition. Now, the United States Senate doesn't have this problem, but it has a far more consequential one that for many reasons back in our history in the 18th century, each state gets two senators. So no matter if it's California with 39 million population or Wyoming with 600,000. So that's a, a case where some people get more representation than others. And it's just another factor of why the system is broken. Yeah, and and this has also sparked debate about the role of political ideology versus pragmatism in policymaking. How do you see these kind of debate uh, shaping the future of American politics and governance? Well, personally, I don't think it's about ideology versus pragmatism Mm -hmm. at all. I, I think it's about who has the power to govern. Both parties want to have power. Um, But it's more them, uh, the Republicans, than uh, the Democrats who represent the 0.001% and do their bidding. Um, You can contrast this with China, where the CPC and the government serve the people, where 800 million people have been lifted out of extreme poverty, and whose life expectancy there in China at birth which is a broad measure of social progress, is now years longer in China than in America. So you only have to compare and contrast the facts, and you'll see uh, the difference in the systems. Okay, and then let's uh, look at the divisions within the Republican Party. Uh, How do you think such kind of divisions might impact the party's performance in upcoming elections? Well, certainly not positively. The Republican Party is far different today than before. Yes, it used to be conservative and it was the party of big business, but now it's functionally captured uh, by ideologues who spent a half a century taking over the machinery. Uh, basically all three branches of government, especially the legislative and the judicial branch, and even more than the Democrats, as I said, are the party of the um, 0.001% of billionaires who are the ones with their army of highly funded, highly placed lobbyists who really call the shots in America. Um, These are the same people who've cut the benefits to the poor, move the tax burden from the rich to the middle class, and who control legislation and regulations to suit only uh, themselves. This is far different than serving the people is uh, in China. And I think uh, that these divisions will hurt the Republican Party a great deal, although um, because of the gerrymandering and everything else, uh, the election is still unfortunately going to be very close. Mm-hmm. And Donald Trump actually um, has expressed his disapproval of Republicans fighting among themselves rather than against what he called radical left Democrats. But how how is Trump's influence playing a role in, in this um, ongoing party divisions? Well, Trump, he's really the great divider in mm-hmm. chief. He's a sower of chaos. He's a master of deceit. He's a con man. He's a clown. But he has a certain charisma to mesmerize misfits and Americans uh, full of grievances. Uh, He has this minority eating out of his hands and throwing money at his campaigns, his causes. 
But I think with all his legal trouble, I think the fair-minded middle, those are the independents who usually uh, influence election outcomes, they aren't buying Trump anymore, and they're seeing through his charade. I think Trump's future is clearly going to be behind bars wearing an orange jumpsuit. Okay, so in light of these recent events, how might the American public perceive um, the effectiveness of their elected representatives and their trust in the political system? I think that Americans reflect very poorly on the political system. 4% of U.S. adults, according to the Pew, say the political system is uh, working well or very well, just 4%. But 63% say it's not working very well at all, and they don't have a belief in the future of the U.S. political system. And um, only 16% of the public, according to Pew, say that they trust the federal government always or most of the time. And what's even worse is a growing share of the public dislikes both political parties and nearly three in 10 express unfavorable views of both parties, the highest share in three decades that Pew's been polling. And 25% don't feel well represented by either party. I don't think these numbers are a good uh, indication of the future of American governance. Uh, There needs to be some fundamental changes uh, or else America doesn't have a bright future. And uh, it's something that should worry everybody in America and every person uh, globally because America has so much impact globally. Yeah, thank you, Harvey Zoden, former vice president of ABC TV Network and senior fellow of the Center for China and Globalization. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Yang. The European Union will examine export controls on sensitive technology as part of its so-called de-risking strategy. The European Commission has identified semiconductors, artificial intelligence, quantum computing, and biotechnology as areas of concern. The Commission will carry out risk assessment with member states by the end of the year to determine what follow-up measures to make. This comes as the United States is curbing China's access to key technologies, including advanced computer chips. For more, we are now joined on the line by Dr. Wang Yiwei, Jean Monnet Chair Professor at Renmin University of China. Dr. Wang, thanks for joining us. Thank you for the invitation. So uh, the European Commission has not ex- uh, explicitly mentioned China, but how do you feel these measures align with uh, the broader EU strategy of de-risking relations with China? Well, it's for political correctness, not mentioned about China, not talking China. Uh, that's different with uh, American uh, culture, it's the way it's trade. Uh, European Union as a normative power, usually, they won't be the example by uh, empire. Actually, the risk is the China risk. It's the factor uh, decouple, or gradually decouple. But uh, in fact, the, the risk for the European Union actually heavily depends on uh, U.S. Uh, security protection, but the European Union says this cannot choose, but the so-called the too much uh, concentrate on the Chinese market, they can choose. So they need diversification of the supply chain, so that means uh, the risk, basically the China risk. 
Yeah, so the EU is is emphasizing economic security as a priority.、Uh, but can you elaborate on how the EU defines economic security and why they identify these four areas as high risk areas? Well, the、uh, European、uh, economic security is different with the United States.、Uh, the United States is a hegemonic power,、uh, which has a military alliance system. So they are focused on the security. Is the Americans can can manage and control the European Union does not have this、uh, potential or ambitions, but the European Union as the、uh, so-called Brussels effect, the big the single market, they are very worried about the European supply chain too much concentrate rely on China, so that's the、uh, so-called the security meaning. So, would you believe that this is、uh, the EU's policy towards China is is largely influenced by the the ongoing rivalry、uh, between the U.S. and China, especially、uh, given how this coincides with、uh, the U.S. tech export tech export restrictions、um, to China? Well, indeed,、uh, the European Union, of course, too much、uh, you know depends on the United States in the security and the military meanings, but also、uh, on the technology and、uh, you know Western norms. Uh, but the European Union also has its own logic、uh, that they have to deal with China, because、uh, they think about China as uh, um, not a developing country as、uh, anymore, as a so-called uh, uh, systematic rival、uh, to the European Union.、Uh, seems the European Union very proud as a normative power. Yeah, yeah. Actually, we are seeing that on on one hand, the EU is 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 kind of seeking dialogue with China, but on the other hand, it has identified、uh, intensified its efforts to restrict critical trade with China. So, how how do we understand such kind of mixed approach from the European Union? Which indeed uh, reflects uh, the dilemma of the European Union、uh, in current、uh, world that economic globalized, political localized. Even regionalized,、uh, so the use of name of the national security ideology,、uh, so weaponized of the supply chain. The thing about the、uh, the market or uh, 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 supply chain too much rely on China is very risky for、uh, European Union. However,、uh, European Union still、uh, very much depends on the external market, and China is a big and rising and very dynamic market for the European Union. Uh, as a traditional、uh, China as a world factory, but also、uh, even high technology.、Uh, given that the European Union seeks the、uh, digital and、uh, green transformation, so the need China's cooperation,、uh, in, including uh, the electronic uh, vehicles. Yeah, and, and you mentioned the weaponization of national security. Can you explain more on that, and how might that impact、um, trade relations, innovation, and supply chains? Well, we said the risk、uh, is very natural.、Uh, it's independent, in, in, mutual independence is, uh, uh, is actually is a phenomenon for everybody in the globalization world. So you cannot make use of this. That this is a、uh, is a risk for you.、Uh, so risk and opportunities always combine together. So de-risk is also the、uh, opportunities from from China side. So China always highlights the, the principles of the market economy. And then uh, the economic uh, uh, rules, so you can no violent this.
Yes, as you said, um, when there are challenges, there's also opportunities. Um, so are there any um, potential unintended consequences or, or, or challenges that the EU may face in implementing and enforcing these uh, technology protection measures, especially in a globalized economy? The European Union is very worried about the Chinese uh, high technology uh, competed with the European Union for three reasons. Firstly, European Union actually, uh, they, are, they are thinking about it, they are the most advanced economy for many, many years. Uh, according to China's different country, but now China catch up with the United States. Uh, not to mention about the European Union. The psychology cannot uh, accept this uh, reality. Secondly, European Union always sees the third, uh, the middle uh, way is the, the different model from the United States, which is very private capital driven. China is a very uh, state-driven, the thing about that. So European Union is very proud of so-called the social market economy model. So in the high-technology innovation, they also want to achieve that kind of model as a normative power. And thirdly, as I mentioned, the European Union very much uh, depends on the United States in uh, national security. So when China's uh, high-technology rival uh, even competed with the United States, the United, uh, the United States always uh, claims that the European Union's safety and security will be leaving the shadow of that. Yeah, and, and, and um, you know, during a visit to Europe earlier this year, Chinese Premier Li Chiang actually called for the business community not to equate interdependence with insecurity. And he said the failure to cooperate is the biggest risk and failure to develop is the biggest insecurity. So does he have a point in saying that technology and trade interdependence has made the world safer instead of more dangerous. Indeed. Uh, European Union actually also felt the dilemma, as I mentioned, that the commercial market uh, circles, particularly in uh, Germany, like uh, uh, you know, automo automobile uh, industries, they're very dependent on China's market, uh, even high technology, uh, because the, the European Union market is uh, not big enough. China is uh, 1.4 billion people. Uh, 400 million uh, middle class. So, and uh, engineering, so we, every year we produce millions of the new engineering. So, this is very attractive uh, for the innovation and the capital uh, investment in, in China can, can make profits and also technology innovation. So, decouple or de risk from Chinese market will do harm to the Europeans' uh, high technology innovation. Uh, European Union and the United States also compete each other uh, in the Chinese market and in global market. So, I think that's the uh, foundation that we should seek uh, cooperation with European Union in high technology. Yes, as we know, China has been proactively advancing in emerging technologies and fostering innovation. But um, in light of the potential scientific and technological decoupling initiated by the West, how do you foresee the impact on China's technology sector and the broader innovation ecosystem that China is striving to cultivate? Firstly, China uh, understands the key uh, high technology, which is highly related to the national security, we should in our Chinese people's hands. We cannot just uh, buy or, you know, uh, from the market. It's difficult. Uh, that, that kind of model, so the market for uh, technology, this kind of model, finish. But secondly, uh, China always highlights uh, with the openness and inclusivity. Uh, like Huawei uh, CEO Ren Zhengfei always mentioned, if the United States, if the West give this technology, uh, the software, the same contactor chips to uh, Huawei, but we definitely will use them because this makes us more independent. This actually is 
uh, common safety and security. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Wang Yiwei, Zhermanet Chair Professor at Renmin University of China. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. India has asked Canada to withdraw about 40 diplomatic staff from India. In a sharp escalation of a weeks-long crisis, the Indian Foreign Ministry has given Canada one week to repatriate two-thirds of its diplomats stationed in India. Tensions heightened after Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said last month that India may have been behind the killing of a Sikh community leader. For more, we are now joined on the line by Rong Ying, Vice President and Senior Research Fellow at the China Institute of International Studies. Professor Rong, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, so the the recent diplomatic standoff between India and Canada seems to be escalating. Could you provide some more background on how the crisis began and and what events have contributed to the current situation? Well, I think crisis has、uh, been started, as you said, that. Yeah, from the accusation by a、uh, uh, Canadian Prime Minister Trudeau's accusation at the Parliament that the killing of a Sikh sort of uh, 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 origin Canadian、uh, related to the Khalistan movement was,、uh, I mean, they had evidence that the Indian government agent was behind that. They said there are credible in,、uh, evidence to support substantial that. But and then they just uh, uh, kicked out of the one of the diplomat, Indian diplomat, and of course India responded uh, by, uh, uh, I mean, kick out,、uh, kicking out the and Canadian diplomat too. But 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 since then, I think we have seen that uh, the uh, Canadians have, have not been able or, or unwilling or unable to provide. The evidence uh, that uh, Prime Minister Trudeau has been claimed、uh, to substantiate that accusation, and on the contrary, I think India, sensing that that、uh, sort of uh, uh, problem,、uh, came up with a counteroffensive or or a kind of countermeasures by running a campaign, not only diplomatically but also I think at home. You see the media. Reports and so on and so forth. The second, that, I mean, thing developed related that Canadians'、uh, allies, in particular, I think United States,、uh, UK, Australia, seems that at least have not been、uh, sort of supportive as、uh, is expected. Instead, I'm calling upon, of course, on the one hand, India should cooperate with Canada for investigation, but on the other hand, I think. That reports that um, uh, there are in uh, uh, they are not very much push、uh, India in because of India's perceived role or the importance geopolitical and so forth. So now we are in a situation where India, instead of on、um, the receiving hand in defensive, rather as an offensive. That's why I think we came with the report that India now. In order to put pressure on the Canadians, they are asking them to withdraw to reduce the diplomatic presence in New Delhi, and this is, of course, a very 
new and uh, important development in this episode. Yes, India now asks Canada to withdraw about 40 diplomatic staff. How significant is this move and what consequences might it have for diplomatic relations between the two countries? Yeah, I think this is a very big uh, sort of a step or very big counter measures vis-à-vis uh, Canadian. Look, I think uh, uh, the uh, uh, Canadians, uh, the diplomats, uh, in New Delhi, I guess they could just have um, 60 something diplomat staff. If they are, they are talking about 40, then two thirds of diplomats had to leave. And I think India also threatened that if they don't leave uh, by October the 10th, the, those remaining will be deprived of the diplomatic immu- impu- uh, immunity, which is, of course, means a lot, not only in terms of security, but also in terms of their uh, uh, their normal uh, activities. And if that happened, that would be a further downgrade of the diplomatic uh, relations. And I think this is something I guess neither side want to see. And we already seen reports that the Canadians that came up uh, a statement that they would like to talk to India privately to find a way to address these issues. So we'll see what the Canadians and the Indians would work out uh, in the in face of this threat by the Indian Indian and the foreign Indian government. Yes, uh, but but how might this ongoing crisis affect India's relations with other Western countries, for instance, the United States, and and what implications might it have for India's global standing? That's a great question. I think uh, in with regard to its relationship with the United States. I think India is raising the stakes by uh, putting this issue in a bigger context. Uh, as if you want to follow the the sort of OPEC's, uh, I mean the, uh, the media reports, one would find that India is trying to put uh, first play the victim, and secondly, I think it try to take it as a as a test case for United States and others in its relationship with with India, knowing that these countries, you know, in particular, uh, attach great importance to the role of India in geopolitics and in the world. But, but the, having said that, I think India also has to be very careful. I think it should not go too far uh, because, all in all, the evidence I think Canadians have uh, may not necessarily, I think, uh, just an empty uh, word. Rather, the evidence they collected are not uh, appropriate for them to share or to make public. So this is something I think uh, uh, India may have to be really careful. Uh, besides, I think this, the, the nature of the incident like that, despite the India's uh, uh, argument that they already made this movement, the Halistan movement, uh, the terrorist movement, but the very fact that if India is perceived or regarded as a kind of a conducting kind of operations like that, that is something that would be very much tarnished, uh, undermine India's image uh, in the Western world, in these countries, United States, uh, UK, Canada, and Australia. Uh, I mean, very much, I think, uh, undermine its image also because it is also complicated. India has a complicated problem with human rights and other. Fair or not, it's a different issue.
But for them, the publicity issue, the image issue is something I think they have to be careful. Mm-hmm. Yes, thank you, Rongying, Vice President and Senior Research Fellow at the China Institute of International Studies. You're listening to World Today. We'll be back. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Yang. Mexico's president has called U.S. military spending in Ukraine irrational and urged Washington to invest more in assisting Latin American countries. During a high-level U.S.-Mexico meeting in Washington, President Andres Manuel López Obrador also slammed U.S. sanctions on Venezuela, Cuba, and other nations, which he said are forcing people in these countries to emigrate. There has been a surge in Venezuelan migrants moving through Mexico in recent weeks in a bid to reach the U.S. border. Many of the migrants say deteriorating economic and political conditions in their home country led them to make the journey. For more, we are now joined on the line by Zhang Shixue, professor and director of the Center for Latin American Studies at Shanghai University. Professor Zhang, thanks for joining us. Thank you. So the Mexican president has criticized the U.S. For, for providing significant aid to Ukraine while suggesting that more should be directed to Latin American countries. How do you assess his argument considering the different contexts and crises that these regions are experiencing right now? Well, I think uh, 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 two points are very important. First of all, uh, the crisis in Ukraine has been uh, going on for 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 almost uh, almost uh, uh, one year and uh, and uh, ten months. So it's time to stop uh, this kind of war. Uh, secondly, uh, well, Mexico is so close to the U.S. So many people from Latin America, particularly from Central America, uh, wish to uh, to uh, to find a job in the U.S. So they will go by land or by uh, the Sea of the Caribbean. Uh, so normally Mexico suffers a lot from this kind of um, big inflow of migrants. So I think that's why. Mexico, uh, Mexican president uh, uh, wants to express his opinions about this kind of situation. Okay, so do you mean that um, from a diplomatic perspective, it'd be, it would be wiser for the U.S. to prioritize its own border security and regional concerns um, over distant crises in Ukraine? Yes, uh, you know, uh, when Donald Trump was in power, uh, the U.S. Built, built a high wall, which, which cost lots of money. Uh, well, from time to time, there are this kind of a, a large inflow of people from, so from Central America and also South America. Uh, they they call them uh, undocumented workers. Well, uh, the U.S. do not uh, uh, the U.S. does not wish to uh, to have all these kind of people. So they uh, uh, so the U.S. wants to build a wall or implement some kind of other tough measures to stop these uh, undocumented workers uh, at the border. But if you want to do this, you have to spend money, okay? So you have to uh, uh, you have to deal with these people. Uh, so are you going to send them back home? Probably not. 
So you have to have uh, offer jobs for these people, but that's a tough job as, as, uh, uh, for Mexico because Mexican economy is not so big enough to uh, uh, to accept uh, such a big number of uh, uh, people from other parts of the world or other parts of the continent. Okay, so as you said, the migration from um, Venezuelans and Cubans through Mexico toward the U.S. has always been a concern. But how do economic and political factors in these countries contribute to this migration? And how might increased aid change the situation? Uh, First of all, we must point out that uh, normally, particularly uh, these countries in Central America, are not good at all uh, in terms of uh, uh, economy and uh, and also social issues. Uh, there, there, uh, uh, the so-called un- uh, unemployment rate is so high, and also uh, there's no uh, social so- social security, and the crimes are uh, are very uh, terrible. So people just want to leave home to find. Uh, a good place in the U.S., but that's not easy. Uh, uh, well, this kind of problem has has been going on for so many decades. So sometimes this kind of migration issue uh, is a very important factor, uh, negatively affecting uh, the U.S. relationship with with countries uh, in Central America or South America. Uh, but I'm I'm sorry to say that. Uh, uh, no matter who is in the White House, the U.S. cannot uh, deal with this kind of migration issue at all. So the only possibility is that the U.S. can offer some kind of a more economic aid uh, uh, to Latin America so that uh, if their economy can develop, then people can find a job and they don't want to leave their homes. Otherwise, it's really a big issue. Okay, so uh, President, uh, the Mexico president also mentioned the impact of sanctions on countries like Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua, Ecuador, Guatemala, and Honduras. What are the motivations behind U.S. sanctions policies, and how do they affect these nations' economies as well as the U.S. border security? Uh, first of all, we have to say that uh, Mexico is really having some kind of big difficulties to deal with this kind of uh, large numbers of uh, migrant uh, workers. Uh, secondly, I would say that the U.S. always points uh, fingers to others. Uh, so I, I believe that uh, uh, I would agree with the Mexican president, uh, um, Lopez, that uh, the U.S. should spend the money uh, not on, uh, uh, on the war uh, in Ukraine, but uh, on economic aid in South America or Central America. Uh, So that would be a kind of a win-win situation for both Latin America and the U.S. Well, I mean, the United States may argue that without a well-functioning government, uh, merely economic aid may not help solve the problem. How how would you respond to that? Well, probably sometimes uh, the governments in Central America or South America cannot... uh, uh, deal with uh, all kinds of domestic issues. Uh, uh, but uh, we have to point out that uh, uh, migration issue is related to many, many factors. 
Uh, I would point out that uh, a lower level, a lower level of economic growth is the most important factor. So, if you want to uh, to cut down the numbers of uh, the so-called illegal migration, the U.S. should spend more money helping Central America and South America to deal with this kind of migration. Otherwise, as I said just now, it's really difficult for both sides to uh, settle down this issue in a, uh, in a nice way. Mm-hmm. Okay, and as we know, Mexico has adopted a policy of neutrality in response to the Russian-Ukraine conflict. So how might Mexico's approach impact its diplomatic relations with the U.S.? Uh, yes, Mexico um, uh, has been uh, trying to uh, settle down this conflict in a, in a peaceful way. But uh, as you know, there are so many countries in the world, Brazil, even China, uh, which are doing their best uh, to settle down this conflict in, in Ukraine. But uh, that's not easy. Uh, well, but... Uh, uh, um, it's good to see that Mexico uh, wants to join others, particularly uh, Brazil or some other countries, to offer a kind of helping hand uh, to mediate uh, uh, with this kind of a conflict. Hopefully, uh, their efforts can pay off. Thank you, Jiang Shixue, Professor and Director of the Center for Latin American Studies at Shanghai University. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. The 19th Asian Games in Hangzhou include sports such as squash, listed in the Asian Games since 1998 in Bangkok. What's special about the sport and what are the highlights of this year's event? What is squash's growth potential in China and the world? Shi Chindu spoke with Zena Waldridge, president of the World Squash Federation. Uh, we know that uh, the squash uh, was invented around 1830 in London. You know, after the 20th century, uh, the game became popular in some countries and regions. So give us some background, you know, what are the countries and regions where squash is popular and how has uh, squash developed in those countries and regions? Well, I suppose um, if we go back, um, you know, 40 or 50 years ago, it was a very popular sport within Commonwealth nations, but now it's very universal. In fact, Europe is now the largest continent in terms of um, in terms of numbers of nations in membership and numbers of players. Um, but it is very it is a very universal sport now, with world champions and world number ones over the last 10, 15 years coming from all five continents, both men and women. Mm-hmm. So it is very much a universal sport. Um, and it has, you know, it, it, it has certainly spread across the world and is now very much growing in nations such as the USA and India, um, um, nations like Poland. Um, so um, and, and, and we hope also that we're seeing some real growth and we anticipate real growth in China, too. Yes. Uh, is it mostly professional or also for people at different ages? They can also play in their spare time. Oh, yes, it's very much um, a a participant game. It's played for people, um, uh, by people of all ages, and it's great fun. Um, So from the absolute beginner, and a lot of people play social squash in clubs 
um, and venues and uh, right up from, you know, from early ages, from five years old up to we've got players still playing in their 80s, well into their 80s. So it's so although we have a very well developed professional tour, it's certainly a player for a a sport that um, is great fun at all levels. Mm -hmm. Uh, Quite massive uh, in that sense. Uh, you know, we know that it's uh, quite uh, like a fast and intensive game. Uh, would you please tell us more about this game and how is it different from, say, other indoor games like badminton or like tennis? Yeah, well, it's, I mean, the rules are very much like uh, the other racket sports in terms of the players play alternate shots. Um, but the difference is we don't have a net. So the real difference is that we're a rebound sport. So both players are on the same side of the net, in effect, in one small one small area that's about nine meters by six meters, and so in that respect, it's a it's a little bit of a of a cross between a racket sport and a combat sport, although it's non contact and non yeah non contact sport. You have both players on 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 the same side of the net, and they have to maneuver around each other. It's a little bit like a dance, um, in terms of they need to. Uh, they, they need to really focus on movement. But um, in that respect, it brings a, a very different dimension um, to the racket sports, to the, to the set of racket sports. Yeah, different skills um, are required <laughs> to be good at that. Um, yes, it is. It, it, it's, um, you know, it's not unlike, I suppose, some of the skills of badminton in, in terms of the physical, the physical attributes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just that the movement's quite different. Um, so, yeah. Um, so it is one of those, and it is unusual in terms of of being a rebound sport. And of course, you don't have, unlike tennis, you don't have the ball having to go and chase the ball because the ball comes back to you because it it comes off the wall. And we have a series of different uh, level of balls, from the super slow that the professionals play with, to having bouncier balls mm-hmm. um, for for the recreational player to play with, which makes it very much easier. And it's a it's a slower game. Um, but just as much fun. You once said you know, squash is a game that fits modern lifestyles very well. Uh, would you please expand on it? Yeah, certainly. Um, well, certainly when it took a real growth in, in certain parts of the world in the 1970s, it was very much a sport that attracted um, business people and very busy people because you can, play, you can play it in 40 minutes and you can get a very good level of fitness in 40 minutes and it's also very social and in that respect i would say that in the modern world where people are so short of time um, and time is a really scarce resource then squash fits a modern lifestyle really very well because you you can get fit keep fit in 40 minutes have great fun uh, play a game um, shower socialize with your with your opponent um, all within perhaps an hour um, you know, with a forty-minute forty-minute workout, and it's an it's a it's a fantastic all-round workout for fitness and strength and agility, as well as having tactics um, and 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 the fun and the fun element. Mm, interesting. And you can do that all in forty minutes. Yeah, forty minutes, and also for your fitness, uh, that sounds um, I mean appealing to a lot of people. Obviously, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Uh, with the COVID-19, you know, uh, I, we understand that, you know, everybody knows uh, there's a huge impact on, on basically every aspect of our life, including sports. Uh, so you were elected as the president of the World Squash Federation in 2020 in the middle of the pandemic. Uh, so I wonder, you know, uh, how do you see 
the status of squash? Do you think it has bounced back from the COVID? And it, are there any challenges right now? Yeah, I think like all indoor sports, um, squash probably was affected more as an indoor sport um, and the fact that you've got two players in a close proximity. Um, it was probably affected more by, more than outdoor sports. But yes, I think we're very surprised and really pleased to see how quickly it has it has bounced back, um, both from a, a player point of view, but also in terms of spectators. And I think as a result, coming out of the uh, coming out of the pandemic, I think we all appreciate um, the, our sport more, um, and we don't take it for granted. And certainly. When, when we look at some of our big um, big events, certainly the spectators have come back in big numbers and are really, really appreciative of being able to see live squash again. Uh, so, so yes, it's certainly it certainly seems to be be to have bounced back in terms of certainly a spectator sport and also um, as a as a player sport. As a player sport, yeah. Uh, squash has appeared at uh, basically every Asian Games since Bangkok, uh, 1998. Uh, so we understand that you know mixed doubles is one of the squash events in the Asian Games in Hangzhou for the first time. So are we seeing a stronger presence of squash in Asian Games? Yes, I believe so. I think um, squash has been um, a really important part of the Asian Games, for, for, as you say. Um, you know, over twenty, near twenty-five years, um, and and I think doubles is gaining is gaining traction. I think it's becoming more and more popular. Um, it's a very strong. It's very strong sport in the Commonwealth Games and in the Pan American Games, and it's great to see now that it's gaining some traction in in the Asian Games too. It's a very exciting sport. Um, a, a number a number of years ago, we changed uh, the rules and the dimensions of the court for doubles to make it more exciting. So we lowered the tin and we widened the, the 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 court, and by lowering the tin, it makes the sport it makes the court feel bigger, and it makes it easier to play winners. So it became a more attacking game, a more exciting game, um, shorter, um, harder rallies, and and with mixed doubles, the, the 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 dynamics between having four players on on court on a wider court, and the male and female and and the alternate shots. I mean, it, it it's a very exciting game now. And uh, you know we're, we're we're hoping that if um, if we if squash becomes an Olympic sport that, that doubles may well be included included in it because it, it is very exciting. That was Zena Woodridge, president of the World Squash Federation, speaking with Shi Chindo. And that's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. A recap of today's headlines: Kevin McCarthy has become the first Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives to be ousted. The European Union will assess export controls on sensitive technology. In a sharp escalation of a weeks-long crisis, India has told Canada to withdraw dozens of diplomatic staff. And Mexico president slams U.S. military support for Ukraine and urged Washington to invest more in assisting Latin American countries. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time.